0: This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Oh, hello, hello. This is Nabil Mahmoud, your host. Nomad futurist from Kona, Hawaii. Uh,
1: This is Phil, your
2: co-host from Brooklyn, New York. And this is Bron from Melbourne, Australia. I think, am I your first Southern Hemisphere guest?
0: You are the first one, Bron. Welcome to the the podcast. Let's start a little bit with your background. What do you do, who you are, and where you're at in your career?
2: Yep. So right now, I am the CEO at FastMail. So I've been here for 15 years now. I started as sysadmin and programmer at FastMail and have kind of, through a long winding road, wound up running a company that has offices here in Melbourne and in Philadelphia and staff spread out around the world.
1: We're going to get to that part in a second, which I think is an incredible story because I think normally, you know, people dream of this idea of starting as a sysadmin and then somehow becoming the CEO. It's not, it's not a typical trajectory, but I think it's one that, you know, a, a lot of people envision as, you know, they excel in their careers. But before we get to that, um, how does one get from, I assume you started, the accent gives it away, right? You started in, in,
2: in Australia. I before- was born on the uh, floor of my parents' lounge room. I can still <laughs> point out the spot, even though the fireplace has since been removed that it was in front of.
0: Um, grew up as a,
2: I, as a hippie kid in the bush, as we call it here, the wilds.
1: So how does a hippie kid from the bush end up uh, you know, in a position to even get the initial sysadmin job?
2: I I mean, I started my programming career with a, a computer called a Dick Smith VZ300, which was it had 16 kilobytes of RAM and it plugged into a television. But living out in the bush with uh, no electricity, we had... Solar and, and micro hydro. During winter, it was fine. I, I had plenty of power. During summer, I didn't have enough power to run the TV. So I would plug the computer into a car battery, which would power its 12 volt power connector. And I would write programs in BASIC that did sound output because I could do that, well, not silently, but with no video. It was.
1: All right. So so you end up, so you're fairly early, obviously, you know, you get off your parents' floor and you start programming in the bush. Yeah, um, something
2: like that. Early teens.
1: And that's it sounds like that was you know fairly early on in uh, what we would call modern day programming. And then, so where do you go, where do you go from there?
2: Got myself an Amiga 2000 and uh, connected by a very slow modem, of course, back in those days to the, uh, the state government systems because I got involved in student council in year 11, year 12. I was home educated through a lot of that time, Went, lived in Western Australia for four years, and went to a Montessori school, which my mother was a teacher at. Um, But other than that, I was home educated up until year 11 and then went to the local high school, which was an hour and a half drive from home. So I pretty much moved out of home during the week from age 16 and lived in a little granny flat at the back of someone's house and went to high school. And so I was not allowed to study computer science in year 11 because I didn't have the maths prerequisites. And then by year 12, I was interested in enough other things that I didn't do with computer science there because I was just too busy with other subjects. But then went to university and added one computer science subject, loved it, hated chemistry because the labs made me sick. I shifted to physics in second year and then shifted to full computer science in third year. So I have a Bachelor of Science degree with a computer science background.
0: What was the driving factor whereby you actually got interested in programming.
2: I think probably the, the big thing that was like, wow, yeah, I, I really get this was actually at university when I was running the college computer network um, and started writing stuff in Perl and realized just how much it, it made sense that things just worked. Um, I, I like the world building aspect of programming and I like the logical aspect of it as I get kind of deeper into it i realized that the logic goes away at the higher levels and there's no one best way to do things and there's no one perfect answer and there are trade-offs and there are competing factors that you have to think about but back then it was all very simple i could type things into a computer and stuff would happen and it was all very magical and i discovered i was good at it and it's always nice to do things that you're good at
0: what was the starting point though i mean did your dad or mom did they get you a computer to start with how did you get exposed to it
2: Not really, uh, being home educated, they got me an Encyclopedia Britannica, which is a giant collection of stuff. I was more into, with with the alternative energy and the living off the grid that my parents had, I got very involved in electronics um, and installing solar systems, installing microhydro systems. So I spent a lot of time working on that um, when I was younger and, and more the electronics side. And then with that first computer playing around with it and then with the Amiga, I actually got into desktop publishing for a couple of years. I decided to write a local newsletter for our community of 100 people and my sister and I delivered it to people on horseback. We rode around and and took people a monthly newsletter every month. And So even while I was at college, year 11, year 12, I'd come home on the weekends and once a month I'd come home and prepare the month's newsletter and take it around to people.
1: Somehow right. somehow, I could just visualize you on that. <laughs> on horseback, delivering, <laughs> delivering your newsletter. I'm not sure. Like if, anybody, if anybody's wondering, Rough-killy if anybody's a Fastmail user that's listening to this thing, recognize that the CEO of Fastmail used to deliver newsletters on horseback. And we're not talking about someone that's 115 years old. He's still yeah. fairly spry. <laughs> All right. So uh, you obviously, you're, you're uh, a programmer. You have a programming degree. So uh, it seems like that is going to indicate where you take kind of the first step in your actual career uh what happens after
2: university yeah so i lived in hobart which is southern tasmania for for people from the other side of the world it's about as far south as you can get that's civilized in this country at least you can go to new zealand and apparently they're civilized too but um, certainly in in tasmania i moved down to hobart for university did did my three-year computer science degree my year of honors that i dropped out of halfway through because i was too busy running the college computer network. And then I applied for a job over here in Melbourne at a company called Netizen. And Netizen was programming, sysadmin stuff, kind of consulting and Perl training. And it was my dream job. And I applied for it. My computer crashed by the time I got back to respond to it afterwards. They'd they'd replied and said, yeah, you sound like a good fit. We've we've checked out your silly web page with all your Stuff from college, so came over for my interview there and and started pretty much straight away. I was there for nine months before they went bankrupt in the whole dot com crash. They were geeks who knew how to geek but didn't know how to run a business um, so it was financially kind of shaky, so I applied for a job. I saw it come across my radar, this awesome job at FastMail doing email stuff and I'd been running the email infrastructure for HRS before we got bought out and forced them to Lotus Notes. And I was still running the email infrastructure for the the backend stuff that if we had large amounts of data coming in via email, it was going through my system rather than going through notes because notes couldn't handle that kind of mail flow. So I knew email stuff already. I knew XML from my days back and and the web shop stuff. And so, yeah, I applied for this one job, Sent off an email. Um, I'm sure Jeremy will admit to this. He got the email and he had some health issues at the time and didn't deal with it and didn't deal with it and was embarrassed and filed it away and never got back to me. So I didn't hear anything back from these Fastmail people. Let
1: the record show that the CEO of Fastmail applied for a job at Fastmail and
2: was completely ignored. I was completely ignored. So meanwhile, Hugo had said, I want you over in the US. So I wound up heading over to the USA, to New Jersey for six months um, in the start of 2004 and working out of Quintal's office there with a team, had one person down in DC, our project managers in Boston. I was reporting to someone in San Francisco who was reporting to someone else in San Francisco who was reporting to the UK who was reporting to the guy just opposite me, a couple of cubicles away, (laughs) who was reporting to Hugo. So five levels of management between us. And it was amazing. I was not allowed to have a server. Well, I could apply for a server to be able to do my work on, but they reckoned that I probably wouldn't get it for six months. This is a large, slow-moving company, used to doing long-term clinical trials, not the kind of agile stuff that we'd been doing at Health Research Solutions that they'd bought us for and then couldn't deal with the pace we moved at and so spent their whole time slowing us down. Uh, it was pretty amazing. But anyway, I, I wound up, <laughs> because my laptop had been purchased in Australia and wasn't in the asset register system over there, they could give me a really high-spec desktop because I didn't have a computer in the system already. So I got the high-spec desktop I could, stuck it in an empty cubicle. That was my server. <laughs> I did all my work on this thing six months in we had another baby on the way wanted to have the child born back in Australia so that we had no difficulties around citizenship and around all those kinds of things and of course a medical system that we know back here so I was about to apply for a job back in Australia my six months economy was coming up I had to either decide to stay in the US permanently or, or go back to Australia it was pretty clear I wanted to go back it was pretty clear that I. W- didn't have a continuing path within this organization. Um, my, my focus and their focus were diverging significantly. So I was about to put in my notice. Um, meanwhile, my online resume had been updated the whole time so that Quintiles could sell me to their clients, here's the person that we're working on your project. And one of the things that had been updated was my phone number. So my US phone number was available online and I got a phone call out of the blue the week before I was about to start searching for jobs back in Australia, it was Jeremy. (laughs) And he had dug out my application letter from a year before and was asking if I was still interested in coming and working at FastMail. So I took this phone call. I joined an SSH screen session with Jeremy and Rob, who was living in Canada at the time, and had my interview while looking around their systems and agreed to start the job a couple of weeks after I moved back to Australia.
0: You started as a system admin with FastMail and now you're the CEO. What was that yeah.
2: like? As a programmer slash sysadmin, whatever. Um, so I came in and I had been, I'd been looking at infrastructures.org. The one thing I'd learned out of my, my time with HRS that was really valuable was automating and, and having an automated system to recreate computers and the idea that the operating system is not special Uh, of course that's all rage now everything's cattle not pets but at the time that was a fairly fresh idea and so I had come in with that and the first thing coming into Fastmail and having these hand-built red hat machines that uh, everything was custom like let's automate as much as I can of this so the six years from 2004 through 2010 there's a lot of making it so that any one computer could be shut down without interrupting service, so that everything was repeatable. uh, Because as we grew, I was running the systems kind of on a fraction of my time while also developing new software. So it had to be as automatable as possible. 2010, um, there were three of us working in a room. Jeremy had already moved on mostly. He had another company as well, and we were sharing office space with them for a while, and then things got a bit complex there because they'd been bought out, and their new corporate overlords didn't want any untrusted people in their office space, so we moved out into our little managed office. 2010, Opera Software. Well, late 2009, they contacted us, and in 2010, they bought us. So that's the web browser people from Norway, and they were interested in adding email to their MyOpera Blogging platform that they were planning to build into a fully f- fully fledged social network. So, yeah, we Fastmail was bought out by Opera Software in 2010. In early 2011, I moved with my family to Oslo to be at the Opera head office. Um, spend some time there and kind of be the the crossover contact person between the teams. And I lived there for two years, working out of the the Oslo office. Obviously, our team grew from three to about 10 people at maximum, a couple partly in our team and and partly doing other stuff at Opera. Um, And then in the start of 2013, I came back to Australia. And and by the start of 2013, I mean approximately one hour. um, I flew on New Year's Eve and landed in Melbourne just after midnight so I uh, moved back to Australia at the start of 2013 Opera had, had built this giant, it was called Browse.me this this whole cross between Twitter and Facebook uh, which was, it was really interesting architecturally it was uh, I guess my external view of it was that they spent too much time designing it and not enough time proving it in the real world so it it never launched um, other than some internal testing and Opera decided to change paths and go more into the advertising side of things. We are very much not an advertising company at Fastmail. Uh, we have moved very strongly the other way, that we ask people to pay money for service and there's no ads, there's no selling of data. And so it, it was not a really good match, uh, Our customers were harassing Opera's CEO quite a lot and giving him a hard time and just creating bad PR for the company in general. And they decided that they didn't really want to have this little email service on the side that that wasn't fitting their strategic plan anymore. Um, They had at the same time sold a contract to a large telco that had email service as part of it. So they couldn't just shut us down. Um, so what actually wound up happening was that we bought the company back from them with a writer contract that said we had to provide the email service for the telco, uh, and that we kept doing that for a couple of years. That that almost launched, um, and in the end, the telco decided not to go ahead with it. So we we kind of did a did a, a soft launch, had thirty thousand or so users um, at its maximum, but. None of them were valuable users and they decided to close it down in the end. Um, it looked like mostly it was Facebook scammers.
0: That's quite a journey. So, how big is Fastmail now? Fastmail is 40 people at the moment.
1: How many, how many users are, are you at right
2: now? It's about a quarter of a million paying users. So where does that put you
1: in terms of like, uh, you know, people know, you know Yahoo.com, Gmail? Like how, how does it
2: compare? Are you um... Gmail's got over a billion. Um, we're a little bit smaller. A little bit. Yeah, but better. So, yeah,
1: of course. Of yeah. course. Uh, you know what we should do? We should get the CEO of, of Google on to, uh, to to talk about the comparison between Gmail
2: We, we should yes. totally, totally have a chat.
1: We've had these podcasts in the past, and we always try to get people to, to try to hone in on what characteristic they see in people or in themselves. You know, what characteristic can you say, um, you know will make someone more uh, capable of being successful in, in our weird kind of critical infrastructure world world. And confidence comes up a lot. Obviously you were, you were in some cases, overly confident early on in your career. Um, And the other is, authenticity and I think one of the things that I've always loved about you uh, and to a certain extent you know, Jeremy and just the Fastmail brand in general is this idea that it's pure. It's not like a lost leader to try to get people in so that you can sell you know, their information. It's not very driven in this kind of new gig economy way towards advertisement, uh, advertising and selling that user base, whether it's a quarter of a million or, or, or 300,000 or, or whatever. And there's something about that, that I think Has always resonated with your users, but also kind of speaks to this characteristic and trait that you exude from an authenticity standpoint. I mean, what other CEO, you know, on the side is... Uh, on one side is is choir, on the other side is what yoga or, or
2: whatever else you'd, I mean, just yeah, fit, fitness classes. Much, yeah, it's just, <laughs> that's, that's it's, my other hobby. Just you can a, see a the bizarre. equipment sitting behind me here yeah. on our Zoom a, you call. Have, you, you know what you should
1: do? You should do the rest of the meeting from your teeter hang up, wow. um, just upside down. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, how important do you think that is? I mean, obviously, it was important in, enough for opera to say, you know what? Just, uh, we can't, we can't do it. You guys are not corporate enough to fit into our corporate world, but how important is that? I mean, there's so much dumb luck basically in, in the telling of your story. You know, you just kind of bopped into one store, you bopped into the consulting place. Somehow um, you ended my
2: up life in, is all dumb luck.
1: It's just that's all dumb right. luck. Right. And, and that's, you can't teach that, but the, why has that worked? Is there a characteristics you can, you can point to as to how, why that worked for you?
2: I, I wish I knew, um, uh, there's a couple of things, one of which is seeing opportunities when they come up um, and being open to opportunities. There's there's so much where it's – I mean, things like the fast mail thing, yes, it kind of fell in my lap that this job came back up, but I also trusted that that something would come up and to keep looking for it. Um, it's right. easy to, with sort of survivorship bias to look back and say, yes, it all worked out this way because, of course, it was going to work out this way. Um, but – yeah, cr- creating opportunities and creating trust was a large part of it. And yes. certainly with, the thing with FastMail is I can honestly say to all employees and to everyone who worked here, you're, you're doing good work. You're not lying to people and trying to deceive them to get their money. We're really upfront. It's a very honest, you pay us money, we add value to your life. And that's it's a really nice place to be.
1: Right. And, and that's the other thing. I mean, there's just there's a certain aspect of also, you know, just this lack of fear and and just clarity about per, just clarity of purpose. Maybe maybe that's it. You know, I, I think people certainly uh, on the American side of things tend to, you know, uh, be paralyzed by fear. You know, I'm not going to move to Jersey because there's an opportunity there or move to Oslo because some company took it over and then move back. You know, it all sounds, you know. To a certain extent, it sounds crazy, right? How could somebody put that much trust in their abilities that they're just going to move from one place to another uh, and do it? And I don't think with critical infrastructure, that sort of thing, which sounds like finance people, in these highfalutin, you know, kind of uh, uh, verticals that people uh, or younger folks want to get into, whether it's media or, or finance or, or legal, where they get to travel the world. You've lived this kind of critical infrastructure, you know, uh, programming life somehow that I think most people don't think of when they think of, you know, a programmer or somebody in our world that should just be, you know, taking their computer apart and putting it back together in their parents' basement.
2: Yeah, well, I I certainly didn't have a path that said I was going to get to where I am now uh, when I started all of this. But I do have some stories from my time at Quintiles which I think are, are kind of valuable for understanding some of my background and approach to it. One of which was I was one of two Australians in the New Jersey office, and I discovered that both of us were quite generalists compared to a lot of the people we were working with. So the, the projects I was working on at Quintiles had five or six stages in the pipeline, and they had a project manager over it that was was managing all of this, and the data would be collected by one group of people, and the forms would be created by one group of people. And then my job was the data management, capturing data that was being entered over the web or on paper that then our staff would data enter into our system, and then providing kind of a clean report from that that would go to the the people who analyzed that data and pushed it on. And so I'd be on conference calls with all the other people who were heads of all the various stages in here, our project manager. And the project managers were experts at managing projects. They knew how to do the Gantt charts. They knew how to place resources. The people in all the other sections were experts in their section. And they knew something about kind of the shape of the input they would get and the shape of the output that they had to create. They didn't understand what the tasks were that the other stages did. And the project managers didn't know how to do any of the bits that they were managing. They knew how to plug them together, but they didn't understand kind of the detail of how all the other bits worked. And I came in having come from a small company where I did all these roles. And so I wanted to understand how all these pieces worked and how we could improve the whole workflow, kind of that overview. And I didn't see that in the people I was working with. I didn't see that kind of an interest in understanding the whole system. Like This is my pigeonhole. I know how to do my bit. I'm an expert in my narrow field. And I think part of that was coming from a smaller pool in Australia where people took more than one of these hats at once um, that you had to understand more of the entire system. And so that one thing I took from that was the value of that system overview, uh, which comes in very handy as you move up and and have to run a company rather than than building your one tiny little bit, is understanding the overview and understanding how the bits fit together. Uh, The other thing was... uh, I worked on something to do with standards within quintiles, and we were dealing with the format for dates, like the official format in which dates would be stored in data within all the quintile systems. And obviously, coming from Australia, which had its year, month, day, month, year, and having the month, day, year ridiculousness that you people use. Um, <laughs> You still see data corrupted because of this thing. And so I managed to get them to standardize on year-month-day, which is an ISO standard and an ITF standard and is the one true way to it's store dates. one true way. You're such a purist. Electronically, because they saw it. They saw it as strings. And I got that written into their standards. And I reckon that's the one thing that hopefully still persists within that organization and has improved things.
1: So if anybody is lesson. wondering, if anybody is wondering how you get bronze juices flowing because he seems like he's like the most zen person in the world, talk to him about date formats. Date formats are oh, that's where he draws
2: the line. You have no idea. And they're about internet standards because that's the other thing that I do within my job is a lot of work on internet standards. And CalConnect is about calendaring and calendaring has lots of stuff to do with dates and we're currently working with ISO on the next provision of their date standard. Dates are one of the things that has stuck with me right through my career, having to deal with with dates and times and all these horrors. But yeah, so I learned the value of of writing the standards, writing the specifications, writing the shape of things that people do. You add a lot more value there than you do writing some brilliant piece of software that a year from now might not be used anymore.
0: You you are certainly a programmer, a technologist. How was that transition getting into becoming an entrepreneur and running a company?
2: It is hard to give up the programming, as you probably noticed from from this. Uh, in 2015, it was probably in 2014 that, that I first met Rick, who's my CTO now. I went to a conference, OSCON, in Portland um, and to talk about JMAP, which is the new mail standard, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point in this. But on, on the last day, I met Rick at a bar and we were both trying to, to flog our mail services to a hosting company, someone from a hosting company talking about their struggles with them. I said, oh, you should just move it all to our platform. And both of us were, were talking about it and we, we discussed kind of more about how our systems worked and how similar they were in a bunch of ways. And Rick went back to Philadelphia and chatted to Helen, who's now my COO. Um, And they decided that they were interested in, well, Helen, who was the owner of the company, decided she was interested in in trying to become part of something larger there. They were struggling to to build kind of feature parity with us, which is similar to my experience at Opera, where they decided to ditch their own browser engine because they couldn't keep up. Um, So... Yeah, looking at the various options for the future of the company and and being bought out by FastMail sounded like a good one. So a year or so of negotiation later, which we can brush over the internal struggles within FastMail where four of us owned not quite equal shares, but fairly even shares, all above 20% um, of the company and deciding, do do we want to buy this other company? There's advantages and disadvantages here. So there, there was some backwards and forwards on that but we decided to go ahead to purchase a another email company that was older than us and did some interesting things um so we bought pobox.com or ic group as they were in 2015 and from there we had these two very different teams one in the us and one in australia the complexities of merging that there's still at the technical level There's there's a lot of systems that don't run quite in the same way but we are we're bringing our technical teams together it's one team that runs both systems now and they just have to switch gears as they switch between them and then in 2017 it was clear that we kind of semi-consensus argue about everything culture that worked quite nicely with three people who were all experts in their own little fields didn't scale to the 20 plus people we were then and we needed to do something about it so i I was probably the one of the owners of FastMail at the time who was most aware of the need to do this, um, and I tried to build a couple of different structures, which didn't work very well. And over about three hours walking the streets of Chicago, uh, Helen and I worked out a process that would work for both of us, and, and it required me to be CEO, which was not the the life I had imagined for myself. Um, but it was what was necessary for the organisation. I was the only person with both the, the trust of everybody and the interest in making it work and the willingness to, to learn the skills required for it.
0: Yeah, if you were to go back in time, is there anything you would do differently? Uh, probably, but I have no idea how it would turn out.
2: So it is, it is hard to go back and <laughs> rewrite the past. So to a large extent, it's homogenising things. And if I had done more of that earlier... Uh, there'd be less work to do now, and it would have been easier back then. It's it's always the earlier you inter, intervene in something, the less work is required to fix it later. Yeah, looking back, what I would have done is is more simplifying and standardizing things earlier.
1: Particularly the dates. I mean, the dates, Matt.
2: It's it's a continual battle. <laughs> They're all fractal problems, aren't they? You the the deeper you look at anything in life, honestly, the more complexity it creates there um, and you can create infinite work for yourself by trying to fix all the little bits.
0: So do you consider yourself a technologist or an entrepreneur? I mean, since you've got these duality of roles, where, where do you fall under and how do you manage? I'm
2: more on the technologist side. The entrepreneurship is more of a challenge for me. I have a bunch of supports in that area. I'm part of a group called CEO Institute in Australia, which is CEOs of similar sized companies in very different fields. That helps with the Australian view of things. I did a leadership training course a year and a bit ago and I still stay in touch with some of the people I worked with on that. And obviously, I have a really strong executive team that's built up. We've restructured it a couple of times, but we now have a a solid group of four people, two in Australia, two in the US, who run the company between us. Um, And that group's working really well. So I'm really happy about that. And I'm happy to be surrounded by really good people.
0: That's outstanding. So now looking back, again, hypothetically speaking, can't really change anything, but what would you do differently from the experiences that you have today? What lessons have you learned that are critical that you'll teach to the younger generation or advise the younger generation?
2: There's Again, it's easy to say what worked for me will work for you. I think keeping your options open and and learning – a wide range of skills is more valuable than trying to follow my past. I don't, I don't think that my past for everybody, uh, it, it is largely a matter of luck. I, I feel like a lot of stuff in my life is just seeing things as they come along and being open to the luck arriving. Um, I can I
1: can only imagine that uh, listeners of ours are going to try to take up horseback riding so they can deliver their own newsletters in order to try to follow the wrong path. That is absolutely the
2: lesson I would take away from this. uh, (laughs) Um, It might be the
0: yesterday's news today.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look, I think I think in general one of the things. That your experience is a clear takeaway is to be true to yourself and and kind of trust yourself in terms of following whatever path feels right, because um, it's really you can overthink a lot of the decisions that you make, and if you just do what feels right, as opposed to you know try to look into the future or try to plan everything, you're inevitably going to end up in a better position. And maybe you'll fall flat on your face sometimes, but I think I think Nabil has a uh, a a nice way of describing failure. Uh, um, what is it?
0: First attempt in learning.
1: First attempt in learning, right? So I think that it, it makes all the sense in the world to focus on that, like that, that being true to yourself. You think that's like kind of the main takeaway?
2: Certainly doing things that you feel happy about and that, that you can, you know, what they say never, never write an email or say something that you don't want to defend in a court of law. If, if it came to it, I can speak honestly about any part of how a business works and be happy that people look at it and go, yeah, that's reasonable. Uh, we're not gouging our customers. We're not doing anything that I couldn't stand up in front of any crowd and say, I'm happy with why we're doing this and what we're doing and here's why. And I think that that makes for a, a lot more comfortable life uh, in your own head. You look at it and go, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm proud of what we're doing. I'm proud of, of
0: how we're doing it. What are some of the cool stuff that you are working on?
2: I said I was going to talk about JMAP. So in the time we were owned by Opera, uh, we had a website, an email platform that was server-side generated HTML pages with a little bit of JavaScript on top to to kind of add some niceness to it. We built a a fully one-page web app in 2013 which was designed right from the start with an API that we'd built uh, specifically to allow client-side immediate updates, everything really nice and fast, and then kind of synchronize back to the server and and presume that the update would go through correctly and update your view immediately and then, then it would get back the yes, that succeeded and everything would be nice and smooth. So we built a protocol for that and it was built from... My background of spending years rewriting the core of our Cyrus IMAP mail server. Neil, who's our front-end lead, his ideas of how things should be to the point that he wrote his own JavaScript framework because none of the frameworks at the time were responsive enough and and good enough for what he wanted.
1: Who hasn't written their own JavaScript framework
2: from time to time? It's all open source. It's all all, uh, available for anyone. Not many people have taken our framework, but a lot of people use our Composer. Um, We have a a rich text editor called Squire that many people have used open source from that. Anyway, we built this protocol and uh, yet another walled garden closed protocol that nobody else can use. Let's see if we can standardize it. And we didn't want to go the big standard body route because we knew it would be years and, and a hassle. So we just published this thing online and started to try and build up interest in it. Obviously, this trip to OSCON where I met Rick was one of the early attempts to do this and so we travelled to a lot of different conferences just to to try and sell the idea of this and talk to other people who were in the industry and see what they needed from a protocol and eventually that went to the IATF uh, in 2017, that time when I walked around Chicago with Helen was the first one of these IATF meetings that I'd been to and presenting about JMAP and starting a working group to work on it So over the next three years after that, we slowly worked this protocol through the stages and there's now a new modern JSON-based protocol for email that was published last year. Um, And so we then, over the course of about a year, converted our system to this new protocol because we'd been running kind of version five or six behind the current one in our system for a long time and now we're using exactly standard JMAP plus our extensions on top, but you can connect to our servers using the published standard and process your email using those standard methods. Uh, so a lot of the work's been around that kind of platform building and standards building.
0: I've been in the technical industries for the last two plus decades, and I did not know how complicated email was.
1: <laughs> this, is, uh, this is why we have Braun to, uh, to explain it, which leads to a perfect segue. Yep. Today, people take email for granted, right? It's almost, it's almost become snail mail. Like you go through your thing, you go through your inbox and there's, There's not spam. It depends who you're using and and the spam, um, you know, controls. And people have really broadened the way they communicate to go beyond email, right? Email is, you take it for granted. And now people use things like Slack or Symphony or, you know, the olden days, IRC. Uh, People are communicating using social media platforms like Twitter. Where do you think fast mail, mail platforms in general, how do they need to evolve in order to keep pace or do they need to evolve in any way in order to, you know, maintain that kind of preeminent way um, that that people, you know, communicate, store data, things like
2: that. They need to evolve slowly. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, I wrote a whole blog post about this just a couple of weeks ago. So it's fairly fresh in my memory. Um, email's not necessarily immediate. It's designed not to be immediate. I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago about how email is your electronic memory. And that's, that's one of the things that, has been very important to me over all the time I've been at Fastmail is the idea that email is your personal copy of things. It can't be edited by anybody else. And that makes a big difference in a world where you can go to a website one day and see, read something, and then you come back the next day and they've they've corrected it. Maybe they put a correction note at the end. Maybe they've just changed the text that's there and you have no idea. Um, obviously, that makes it very difficult to to check your own memory And I know all the cool kids throw around words like gaslight here. But the idea that things can change that you thought you knew and you can't double-check your memory. So email, my conception of email is that to a large extent, it is about being your electronic memory. The archives are the important bit. You can go back and search later. You can see exactly the email you saw at the time and it hasn't changed underneath you. Um, So that is one of the key things that I find with email. Instant messaging is great, but I remember having a Facebook messenger chat with a friend and five years later, we wanted to go back and check something that we'd said and there was a gap. We had some stuff from 2007. We had some stuff from 2012. There were no messages in Facebook's history of that gap in between. We couldn't find the messages we'd sent during that time. And uh, like, Probably a that's, personal computer. Probably. <laughs> Maybe it had been filtered because we'd said something wrong. I don't know. But that, that's not very helpful there. For me, email is all about the, the memory side of things. The, the current processing of today's email obviously is very important, and workflows for that are great. But it's that long term archive that I find the real value in.
0: Let's switch gears. So with COVID-19, uh, how are the dynamics out in Australia? How are things for you guys? Victoria
2: almost got rid of it and it looks like it's it's possibly on the rise again now. Numbers have been 10, 12 new cases a day, which is pretty small. Um, there are states in Australia which have less. And so we, we were very lucky. As far as the country goes, we have a rule that if you can work from home, you must work from home, um, which is still in effect. we uh, next week gyms are going to be allowed people back in again. You mentioned your kids are back in school, and I physically. Kids are back in school. School started two weeks ago. Um, they phased it. They they took year twelve, so my my older kid got to go back a week earlier um, and went back earlier as well just to try and space things out and they, they've spaced drop-offs so depending on your, your last name you get to arrive in different windows rather than everyone arriving at exactly the same time.
0: So how do uh, yeah. you address the size of the classes? I mean it's the same number of students in the same class.
2: Yep. There's this theory that uh, kids can't transmit it which
0: I hate this. What, what is it in the US? Uh, essential workers can't transmit COVID-19 either. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. The, so you know how much I talk about honesty? There's yes. a an impression in public policy that you need to lie to people in order to create the effect you want. To go back to Jeremy Howard, the Fastmail founder who's talking a lot about masks. The idea of you don't need to wear a mask in public, it won't do anything. And the reason for saying that was so that there wasn't a huge run on purchases of masks that are required for essential workers who do need them for their job and so if you tell everybody a mask doesn't do anything then they won't buy the masks and there'll be enough masks for everybody else but meanwhile you're lying to people and you're reducing their trust in you to be telling them honest scientific truths and so the next time you tell them something important they're not going to trust you because you lied to them last time uh, that side of public policy is incredibly frustrating. I do not have an answer to how to fix this. Well, Maybe that's we the same
0: globally. It's not a US-based challenge. It's a global challenge. They are all from the same clock.
2: Yes. Everyone has has optimized for the short term to get the immediate result they want, and they will deal with the mess down the road.
0: Yeah. So now, uh, Bron, you being an entrepreneur, an honest person, uh-huh. what's your take on how long this is going to last? I mean, are we until the end of the year? Are we looking at the end of 2021, 2022? Based on information that you have read, heard about, or being fed, where do you think COVID-19 is headed?
2: I have a great story from high school. Someone came and asked me what my opinion was on euthanasia. And to be honest, I didn't actually know what the word meant. But I said, look, I don't have enough information to have an opinion on this. Um, And they were quite impressed that I was willing to admit that. I'd like to say the same here. There's heaps of misinformation out there, that's clear. I don't have enough information to have an opinion on, on when this is gonna finish because it depends on things that happen, which I'm not an expert in. So I, I really can't answer that question.
1: We're certainly gonna have, we're gonna to have to have Jeremy Howard on just to, to see what his answer to that question is.
0: Putting in perspective, you being an entrepreneur, what are some of the challenges that you foresee with COVID-19 and it lasting for, for a period of months or years?
2: So in terms of challenges for FastMail, the company, obviously we are competing against a free product. You can get Gmail for free. You can get a ton of online free email services where you trade your personal data, you trade their ability to to crunch information about you in exchange for the service. That's what's paying for it. If people can't afford, having a good email service is a lot more of a luxury than having food to eat or shelter. So we know that if people are struggling to pay for things, we're going to disappear from their discretionary spend before things that that are more essential to their life. So that's that's a challenge. Obviously, stability in general. Social stability is a big challenge at the moment in many places throughout the world. There's a lot of geopolitical stuff that has come out of the whole situation here that, again, I have no idea where it's going to go. Um, So that's a risk that we have to take into account. Working from home has been a lot less of a challenge for us than for a lot of people. Here I am sitting in a Zoom call. This is my life these days. I spend a lot of time sitting in Zoom calls. As a company, we, we were ridiculously well-placed to deal with this. We already have really good online communication tools. We have good email management tools because we're an email business. So that, that side of communication just works the same. I know face-to-face improves kind of that level of trust and that level of understanding that the other person's a real person. Phil and I have sat and eaten desserts and, 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 had drinks together and laughed, and that builds a level of trust. That
1: I actually, I actually believe uh, uh, one of the things I'll admit is, I believe we were in a car screaming um, Hamilton. Were we singing Hamilton? Oh, we in a certainly
2: car? were. We oh, were I singing Hamilton as we drove out to the New Jersey data center. It's really, that was really bizarre, an amazing was day.
1: Our Choir is one of his things. I mean, when, yeah. as as an entrepreneur, you have to mold yourself and adapt to uh, to your customer. Have you had to change Absolutely. any um, any business practice? Do you see any changes in the way Fastmail does business? Uh, based on the new reality, the new norm. I hate all those words.
2: Very, very little. We already provide the kind of service that's very useful to people who are stuck in isolation. The ability to have emails come in and not have to deal with them immediately is so much nicer than real-time chat systems where you, you have that huge... Backlog. If, if you silence it for a couple of hours, you come back and there's tons of notifications. There's tons right. of stuff demanding your immediate attention. Email is already good at not doing that. So we've been building more stuff around filtering your emails and uh, about managing your emails to allow you to more easily. Snooze uh, like Snooze was a feature that came out last year and has been very handy in, in this kind of situation where you, you're stuck at home with the kids and sometimes you've just got to deal with you later, deal with you later about... Right email that's coming in Uh, so Um, yeah we're building more features to help people who are even more time challenged
0: what would you tell your younger self
2: yeah i'm pretty happy with with how things have worked out honestly and don't change a thing. Have you ever yeah, met anyone that is
1: so happy? Like they so like has had this life arc that is so like precipitately based on you know continuing to follow. This, of course, if I were bronze younger, so I wouldn't say anything to myself either. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty you. happy with my uh, life. I have one question as as a wrap up. You are it's been so focused on on email and programming. You are a broad technologist, a man with boundless. Curiosity, probably coming from the Encyclopedia Britannica's in the bush and having you know nothing to read but um, every every um, every every book of of that that crazy um, encyclopedia.
2: What I can tell the, you a lot about hydroelectric systems. I'm, not, I'm
1: sure you <laughs> can. Um, with respect to so many things out there, you know, autonomous vehicles, five G. To a certain extent, I think some people believe five G caused COVID nineteen. We're not going to get into oh, yeah. some of the, some of those things.
2: That that's uh, probably one of the most scientifically based theories out there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I will quote you on that. I now have that on the record. Is there anything outside of the world of technology, outside of the world of um, date manipulation and and um, and structure that uh, that gets you excited?
2: I'm getting more interested in, in how the human mind works um, and the, the challenges around that. Certainly seeing the way that social networking and the continual flood of information is messing with the human brain. Um, and our ability to, to think sensibly about things in the world. That's, I think, the next big challenge. Um,
1: so, is that, a, that's, so that's not really AI, that's I.
2: Yeah. Um, the people who know the most about this are, are marketers, right? Because they get the real feedback loop. You, you do something that works, it works. You do something that doesn't, doesn't. And there's, there are a lot of techniques for making the human brain do things which are not good. Um they're not good for us, and so we're we're continually being pressured with things to to make our brain do what the person outside us wants rather than what we want. Um,
0: yeah, I think as technologists, it's our job to to make sure that we keep that human element and the truth. Uh, yeah. support. Do you try to make
1: do you try to make that clear to like your children? Your children are, are are obviously you know huge consumers of technology. Like all of our, to my two year, my three year old is uh you know uses uses cell phones with um a, a regularity that I probably wouldn't admit to uh to, to other parents in my neighborhood. Certainly not to any of your teachers. But um, do do you prepare them for the fact that you know they're they're in some cases being manipulated by technology?
2: yeah we've been discussing that quite a lot recently the idea that particularly if you read reviews of a source rather than going to the source itself um that you you're getting a a viewpoint on top of things and and that if you're if you're looking at a stream of data that's been categorized for you by an algorithm as this is something you'll be interested in you're going to wind up believing what the algorithm believes rather than than having your own thoughts and that is that is a challenge Teaching them to be skeptical and to, to consider inputs that come in from the outside world on their own merits rather than, than pre-filtering them. I think the answer is moving them to the bush for a couple months. Times change, Phil. Nothing is permanent. Um, and that is, a, that is a challenging lesson to learn. It, there are things you love that go away and there are new things that come and you, you have to accept that things you love will change and go away.
0: This has been great, nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.